Testing, one, two, three, is this on? Is this working? Hello. Barely. Can we turn this up a little bit, somebody? Testing, one, two, three. It's not, it's, it's, the volume's a little low, isn't it? Yeah. Can somebody turn this up for us, the volume? I think we need a little volume help. Can you hear me okay in the back? You can? Okay. Very good. It's just my ears. <laughs> my, it reminds me of my mother. My mother is 88, and uh, she uh, is a church organist, and she was still playing until she was 86. And uh, when she stopped playing, it was because she went to church one day, and she saw people's lips moving but heard no sounds. <laughs> she, she figured, I better not be the church organist anymore. <laughs> I think maybe I'm getting there a little early at 57. Guys, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter 5. You know, I'm, I'm glad that we sang that hymn, and I'm glad we sang all five stanzas, which you normally don't do, because uh, that hymn has been, actually been taken out of a lot of hymn, hymnals uh, in the past 25 years or so because it's too militaristic, some say, and kind of reminds us of the Crusades, which uh, I think we all uh, agreed to be a, a, a mistake, a militaristic attempt to bring in the kingdom of God. But if you, re- if you read the words to that hymn carefully, we're not talking about a physical battle. We're talking about a battle against the evil one. And it's a very serious battle. And I think it's because uh, we do not take the devil as seriously as we ought, that we believe we can take hymns like that out of our hymnals, or we think that we can live a Christian life and be mild people and not be militaristic. If you're if you're a Christian disciple, it's going to involve a very militaristic mentality. It's going to involve warfare. It's going to involve uh, the, the greatest effort you've ever given to anything in your life if you're going to be effective in being a follower of Jesus Christ. So I like that hymn. If it seems a little too militaristic, well, just think again. Do you really believe that the devil is alive, and do you believe he's powerful, and do you believe that you've got a wrestling match on your hands? Well, if you do, then uh, onward, Christian soldiers. Let's go at it. Well, here we get it in First Peter chapter 5, and Peter ought to know uh, he faced that battle, and he, he lost some battles, but then he began to win some, and he knows he's going to win the ultimate war. But he knows it's very serious business. He knows what the devil can do to us. And he knows that these Christians in Asia who are struggling with persecution around them need to be very aware of their opposition. Now, uh, so far in Peter's epistle... He has been, uh, when he speaks about our opposition, he's been talking about the pagans. He's been talking about those who disagree with us. And he talks about those uh, who have authority in high places who oppose us and are hostile to us. Now, that, uh, this little minority group in Asia was struggling because they were being opposed not only by people who were hostile in the synagogues, but people, Roman authorities who were hostile, and they were being opposed by a hostile neighborhood in which they lived. And this is really the first time that Peter is going to speak now in very spiritual terms about the spiritual opposition that we're facing. And he's really clear about it. Let's take a look at it. If we're going to if we are going to stand by faith, if we are going to stand at all, it's going to be by faith. And uh, if we're going to be successful in this Christian life, we're going to have to take on this warfare. Let's look at two verses today. First uh, Peter five, eight and nine. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. First of all, we want to get in gear. He says, be self-controlled and alert. Let's look at these two words briefly. The first one basically says, wake up. Or another way to look at it would be, be sober. And Peter uses this same word in 1 Peter 1.13 and 1 Peter 4.7. You can look at those references. In 1.13, uh, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your, your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So wake up. Be sober. You can't do this half-soused. Uh, you have to be ready. Wake up. Be alert. Secondly, the second word is stay awake or watch would be the word. It's the word that Jesus uses over and over again in his Olivet Discourse, that sermon in Matthew 24 when he's talking about the end of 
time. And you want to know what the so what is? The so what is watch and pray. This is the word he uses. So it's the kind of concept he gave to the disciples when he went to pray in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Stay here, watch and pray. Stay awake. Stay alert. Be on the ball. And of course, they fell asleep. And Jesus is gracious to us even when we do fall asleep. But his advice to us is watch. So if you're in a warfare mentality, if you believe you really have a contest on your hands, you are going to be alert. And you're ready for the schemes of the evil one. You're ready. You're not going to, you're not going to let there be a surprise attack. It won't be a surprise attack because you're not going to get surprised because you are awake and watching. And, uh, you know, you say, how, how do you put this into practice? Well, you realize something about your opposition, that they're really out to get you. I remember uh, when I was in seminary, we used to, they used to give us, I think they still do, the Minnesota Multiphasic Inventory, MMPI. And uh, this is a test, uh, uh, probably some of you have taken it, because it's a test for abnormal psych. Uh, <clears throat> and so in seminary, you know, they want to be sure to get the paranoid schizes, you know, uh, and locate them so that we can get proper treatment. Um, and, uh, and listen, I'm not making fun of that disease. That, that is very serious business. And if some of you have that in your families, you know what I'm talking about. But... Uh, they, they want to be sure that they put us through this abnormal psych grid to see if there's anything really weird that we're dealing with that we can label it. So, and I'm sure you're glad that they do that in the seminaries these days. But I remember one of the questions, and, and the Minnesota multiphasic is a sophisticated test. Sometimes we give tests around here that are not sophisticated. You can fool them, you can mask, you can pretend, and the test won't get behind your answers. The MMPI will get behind your answers. So if you're trying to, if you're trying to, you know, elude certain diagnoses, you probably aren't going to make it if you, if you try to fool an MMPI. And uh, I remember one of the questions. Uh, do you believe the devil's out to get you? Now, I know what they're really asking. You know, am I paranoid? But, but they asked if I think the devil's out to get me. I had no choice but to say, yeah. Yeah, I believe, believe the devil's out to get me. And I don't think I'm paranoid. Uh, some people would think that you are. I think maybe the psychological community would think that you are. Uh, now, if there are other symptoms that go along with that, then we can talk later. But uh, we should be really clear about something. The devil's out to get you. He really is. And uh, unfortunately, uh, he's not this figure in red tights. And a, and a tail and a little cap with horns on it. I wish he were. We could deal with him very easily. We just laugh at him like we do now. Put him in cartoons. He is no cartoon figure. Uh, you cannot caricature him like that. He's awesome. He's powerful. And he's, he's completely evil and devious. And he likes to eat little boys for lunch. Like you and me. So to begin with, you have to know what your opposition is. Secondly, if you're alert... You're watching out. As we've discussed before, you're working out scenarios. Remember we talked about that uh, Colin Powell said, you know, we should never be surprised. We should always be ready for the scenarios that attack us in a military operation. Same way with Christianity. You should know what your enemy is. You should have thought through and studied some of his schemes and the way he operates. And you'll find, you'll find all the patterns in the Scriptures. You want to know how he operates? You'll find it in the Scriptures. But you should study his pattern of operation, how he, what, how he works. You should not assume he's going to leave you alone. Uh, you should take those same patterns and assume they're going to come to you and then figure out ahead of time what the scenarios are and how to respond. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about when we say we should watch and pray or we should wake up, we should be alert, we should be sober. That is, you know you have somebody who's after your lunch and after your, your life and you, you have the history book here that shows you how he operates. And, you know, this is the way, this is the way military generals do it. They study their opposing general. They look at the history of warfare. They study what he's done in the past, what his patterns are, and they put the pieces together to figure out what he's likely to do in this scenario. And so you should be aware of these things. We're not, we're not kids. Uh, we've had enough experience. We should now be ready. Uh, to develop those scenarios and develop our answers to every scenario and be ready to pull the trigger and go at it. We should be ready to use whatever means are necessary 
to put down the rebellion. Whatever means are necessary to put down the rebellion. So if you're being attacked, you should be you should have thought about that scenario. You know where your weak points are. You know where the chinks in your own armor are. You know where you're likely to be attacked. You know, if you were the devil, where you would attack. Are, are you that aware of your weaknesses? You should be. If you were the devil, and it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination for some of us. <laughs> I'm just teasing. If you were the devil, how would you attack yourself? Do you think that he's dumber than you are? You think he hadn't noticed the same weaknesses? He cannot get inside your head. Only the Lord can do that. But he can observe everything. And you think by observing you, he hasn't already figured out what you know about yourself? Of course he's figured it out. So you develop scenarios that are based on worst case possibilities and probabilities. You develop scenarios of how to respond. You use every weapon within your power to engage in. That's being alert. And then you also are, remember, you're working in an army. There are many of us. And so we put ourselves together and we marshal our corporate resources. Nobody fights this battle by himself. We marshal our corporate resources. That means we're keeping each other awake, keeping each other alert. So we have an obligation to our brother. He is your brother. And you will carry his burdens, as we've discussed. And we carry each other's burdens and we watch out for each other. We keep each other awake and we use each other and call upon each other's resources, which we're going to need. Anybody who's fighting a battle knows that you've got communications. It's a network. It's a coordinated effort to fight a battle. You've got to have each other. You've got to have air. You've got to have, you've got to have support from the sea. You've got to have the Marines. You've got to have the Army. You've got to have all these people working together in a coordinated effort if you're fighting a serious battle. And so you've got to communicate. You've got to use the resources that are around you. And we have some guys that are acting literally like military idiots. They think they can go out there on their own fight this battle, and come out alive and feel really good about themselves. They're just waiting to be devoured. So you stay alert. You watch. You pray. You unite your heart with others. You, you are set. You're ready to go. So that if indeed you start losing a battle, somebody else is going to pick you up. And you've already created your safety nets because you haven't overestimated your individual power. You've united yourself with other people so that when they see you going down, they're able to come along and pick you back up. And if you think you don't need that, the devil's already got you in his, in his grasp. So this is what Peter means when, when he's saying, be self-controlled and alert. Wake up and realize the, the situation that we're in. Now, secondly, in the second half of verse 8, he's saying something very important here about warfare, and that is know your enemy. Your enemy, the devil, he says. He has a name. And you'll notice a couple of popular names for this enemy. Number one, Satan means adversary. The word Satan means adversary. And you get that right from the beginning, don't you? In Genesis chapter 3, we are told by God himself that this adversary will come and be nipping at your heel all the time. Uh, he w And... And the seed of the woman, uh, all of her offspring, but especially the seed with a capital S, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be wounded by him. He will, he will nip at the heel. He will, he will bruise your heel. But then, of course, he says, and the seed of the woman will crush his head. We'll get to that in a moment. But you see the animosity that's set up between the devil and humanity, the seed of the woman, Right from the Garden of Eden. And, of course, you can see before that pronouncement, that curse, that the devil has come and undermined the relationship between human beings and their creator. He has tried to divide us off from the one who made us, and the, one, the only one who really loves us. He's tried to drive a wedge between us. This is always satanic activity, to drive a wedge between those things that belong together. You'll find this in marriage. He'll try to drive a wedge between that which belongs together. You'll see it in churches. He drives a wedge between those men and women who are supposed to be together. He's always dividing, dividing off. Why? Dividing and conquering. Or, more to the text, dividing and devouring. That's, that's his, his strategy. So, he is our adversary. He is absolutely opposed to us. He does not desire your well-being at all in any way whatsoever, except 
that there's a temporary pleasure by which he might allure you to your destruction. That's all he, the only enjoyment he wants you to have is whatever he has to give you to allure you to total destruction. So if he has to sugarcoat something or put out an aroma that seems attractive to you or in some way to seduce you, that's all the pleasure he's going to give you. It's only to deceive you. He's a total adversary. You never had an adversary like this. Some of you think you were married to one at one time, but I'm telling you, you never had an adversary like this who is totally committed to your destruction. Secondly, the devil simply means accuser. So your enemy, the accuser. And uh, certainly you could pick this up uh, on in, in Job where Job, uh, I'm sorry, in, in Job chapter one, you have the, the devil is is obviously accusing and uh, he accuses you. Before the throne of God. For the meanwhile, he has access to try to accuse you before the throne. He would also love to accuse you before other people. So that once again, he can divide and devour. He also loves to accuse you to yourself. And so when you're condemning yourself, which men do a lot, and they have all kinds of cover-up schemes. The cover-up schemes for condemning yourself... Or things like alcoholism, sexual addictions, uh, blame shifting, depression, anger uh, mismanagement. All those things are covers for self-accusation. Let me tell you where the source of of your self-accusation is. I'll tell you, it's one being right there, the devil himself. He's your accuser. And he's taught you well how to accuse yourself. And some of us are particularly vulnerable to being his mouthpiece to our own hearts. And we let him use our thoughts and even our mouths and our whole lives to condemn ourselves. That is not from above. It is from below. Some guys think that they're being really religious when they simply go to church for the experience of getting beat up again by the preacher. And they feel like, boy, that was really a great sermon. You know, they come out and just beat up. They just almost, their faces are almost bloody. You can see them. Man, that was a good sermon. I was really convicted. And all they've done is been beaten up again. They really haven't been challenged to know who they are in Jesus Christ. And by His victorious power to go out and conquer, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Not the devil himself. In Christ, we are conquerors. We don't go to church to get conquered. We go to church to have our flesh be conquered, but we don't go to church for our souls to be conquered except by Christ. And sometimes we come out even of our religious experiences, only condemning ourselves more. Let me tell you something. That is not from upstairs. That's from down below. When you're hearing from the Lord, of course, we're all humbled. Of course, our flesh is condemned. But we as sons of the living God are lifted up. And even as our flesh is put down, our hearts are lifted up and we're encouraged. We know that we're loved. We know that there's nothing that can separate us from him. And we come out with a sense of triumph while humbled. That's from above. What's from below is, well, I'm a louse. I'm no good. I blew it again this week. And that's about the main message that we've got. So sometimes we even we even couch it in religious language and do the devil's work to be our adversary and our accuser. That's his business. And so when you're just running yourself down and it is not motivating you in the mission in the long run, you're probably participating with the voice of the devil himself. That's his business. Now, let's notice three things that Peter says about him. First of all, he is on the prowl. He prowls around. And once again, in Job chapter one, you see this. The devil just kind of, you know, the devil in Job one roams throughout the earth. Roaming around for what? Roaming around to see what destruction he can do. He hates God. You may doubt God sometimes. He may, I mean this reverently, he may tick you off sometimes. You may wonder about his way sometimes. You may feel distance from God. You may have a lot of negative or dark thoughts that come to you from time to time about God and his ways. But gentlemen, he hates God. With a total hatred. And he hates what God has made. And would devour it and destroy it all. He is prowling around to see what destructive 
hateful things he can do. I know sometimes there are human beings that are hard to understand. But every human being, including Hitler, I mean, Hitler had a girlfriend. Go figure. I mean, even in Hitler, there's something there that connects with human love. And you can find some value in the worst human being. I'm telling you, in Satan, you find no value whatsoever. He is totally contemptible. And he's after you. And so he prowls around. He's prowling around right now. And he's trying to figure out what, what havoc he can wreak. And you and I know we have enough chinks in our armor. There's plenty to shop from there. You know, plenty to keep his demons busy. Just shop around for where you find weaknesses or people who are arrogant or proud or greedy or lustful. And you see these behaviors. Well, just pile on. Just pour more fuel on the fire. He's prowling around always looking for destruction. And, of course, you remember Job 1, his big complaint was, hey, I can't touch Job. You, you put a hedge of protection around him. I, how, do I, how do I get to him? I mean, I can't tempt him. Life is too good for him. So God takes the challenge. He says, okay. Uh, in fact, God was the one who said, have you considered my servant Job? God started it. And Satan complained, well, you, you made his life too good. How, how can I do anything to him? And God says, okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to demonstrate before the angels the glory of my saving power. I'm going to take away everything except his soul. Satan, I'm going to let you wreak havoc with everything in his heart, everything in his life except his heart, his soul, his nefesh. And that's exactly what Satan does. So you can see that in the strategy of today, before we get to heaven, before glory comes, God has his purposes from time to time to demonstrate his glory. You say, well, thanks a lot, God. And that's what I mean. Sometimes you get ticked off at it. And that's because you don't understand what he's doing. And you don't understand what he's doing to you, ultimately. And, of course, you get to the end of Job and you find out you know, Job's wealth is doubled, which is just a little foretaste of what's happening to us. When God takes us and uses us to demonstrate the power of his saving might, and lets the devil, allows the devil to do his worst hateful destruction against our bodies, against our families, against our estates. We will remain true also, just as Job did, as God told Satan would be the case. And we glorify God before all the heavenly beings that God is indeed a saving God, even through the worst things the devil can do to us. You're going to end up with ever more than you had before. I mean, you don't know that now. You wouldn't understand. I wouldn't either. All we know now is to be ticked off with our father. We don't understand why he's doing this. But the devil loved it. He loved every minute of it until, of course, Job was restored. The devil hated that. Let me tell you, the devil's going to hate a lot more of what's coming his way. We'll get to that in a minute. But he's on the prowl. And anybody here that he can wreak havoc with, he will do it. He's on the prowl. Secondly, he roars. He prowls around like a roaring lion, which means that he intimidates. He scares the bejabbers out of us. I don't know if you've ever had one of those animals roar at you, but it is scary. And, of course, the Christians here in, in Asia are, and around the world are quite aware of this principle of a lion. In, in the Psalms, you'll find several times the psalmist will use the metaphor of a lion to describe our enemies who are trying to devour us. So that's a common metaphor in the Psalms. But for the early Christians, it was not just a metaphor. It was a reality in the Roman Colosseum. I don't know if you've been to the Roman uh, Colosseum, but, you know, when I go there, I can almost just, I can almost hear the lions who are, you know, and it's a wonderfully preserved place if you've been there in Rome. And right underneath your, your feet were where the lions were kept to devour the Christians. And so when they thought of a, a, lion, a roaring lion, they thought of a lion with blood dripping down its mouth with Christians' blood because the emperor had put the Christians in there for entertainment. And what, what Peter is saying that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, you all know what I'm talking about. And they say, mm-hmm, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. It scares us to death. It is scary. I remember one time uh, years and years ago, my David, who now is about 6'5", 27 years old, he was just a little pea squat, about three years old, you know, and we took him to the Knoxville Zoo. 
And it's a little zoo, but it has some interesting animals there. And I went to the zoo with Allison and my kids and also a good friend who is just a nutcase. I mean, he's always saying funny things, doing crazy stuff, just a total nutcase, funny guy. And so we get to the the tiger's um, cage. And uh, we were just sitting there looking at the little tiger, you know, and he was over there over in the corner. It was kind of a sunny spring day. And he was over in the corner and just kind of like this and wasn't moving around at all. He was kind of a boring tiger. So my nutcase friend, he decides he's going to try to get the tiger's attention. So he says, hey, tiger. And he starts dancing around and making, you know, cracking jokes to the tiger to see if he can get him to respond. And of course, we were all laughing. The tiger was just sitting there. And uh, Tom kept this up, my nutcase friend. And the tiger just opened one eye. I should have been warned. But he just opened one eye and just watched Tom. And Tom got his annex increased in velocity and volume. And he, was, he, was really, he wanted that tiger to come over there and say hello to him. He was trying to get the tiger on him because he had his little boy who had never seen a tiger before. And Tom wanted his little boy to see, see the tiger. Come on, walk around, show us what you've got. So Tom was over there trying to entertain the tiger, trying to rouse him. I had David, my little son, on a rail, just sitting on a rail. That's all it was. And I was just standing behind him. And Tom was doing anything. And finally, Tom started jumping up and down. And a gentleman, all of a sudden, that tiger decided it was time to move. And I don't even, I didn't even, it was a blur. The next thing I knew, the tiger was spread eagle, flying in the air toward us, going, Roar! And David fell off, and I caught him, and my hair was going back on my head, and Tom fell over, and, ah, you know. That tiger scared the pajabbers out of us. I've never seen anything like that. And of course, that was the last, oh, nutcase Tom. He, he just, he had his comeuppance. It was so funny. That tiger was huge. He was powerful. He made that cage rattle. And I was so glad, I've never been so glad for iron in my life. That was just a little tiger. And Peter says, the devil is a lion. And he's prowling around. And he's roaring. He's scaring you to death. And tell you what, after my little encounter there with one of those jungle animals, I was scared. I, I admit it, I was scared to death. My heart just stopped. And that is the picture that's being given to us. He's on the prowl. And he's awesome. And he scares the bejabbers out of us. Now, thirdly, as we've seen, he devours people. He prowls around like a roaring lion. And there's a reason for this. He's trying to get food. And you're the food. Now, I'd like for us to look for just a moment at his methodology. When he's trying to eat you up, when he's trying to devour you, what's his digestive strategy? Here's, it, here's what I believe it is from the Scriptures. Number one, he uses afflictions. And certainly you get this in Job chapter 1 where Job loses his sons and daughters. He loses his animals. He loses his estate. He loses his health. He has boils all over his body. He loses a desire to live. And as we've seen before in here, the only thing he didn't lose was his nagging wife. And she was encouraging him to curse God and die. And he says, you speak like a foolish woman. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But it's through afflictions that the devil did his work on Job. Do you think that there's any reason why the devil should not deal with you in the same way? Do you think that you're not subject to discouragement and to turning away from the Lord through physical disease, financial problems, Afflictions of various types, death and destruction. Do you think that maybe the devil would just not fool with you because that's not going to affect you? Wouldn't have anything to do with your being tempted to draw away from the Lord? No, of course not. So if afflictions discourage you, well then, take it for granted. You are subject to the devil's 
afflicting ministry. That's one strategy that he uses. And the strategy, of course, is to discourage you so that you will curse God and die. That was the message that Satan's wife had for, for uh, I mean, for Job's wife had for Job. She was a mouthpiece of the devil. That's the reason Job says you're speaking like a foolish woman. You're speaking like a foolish person who has allowed their mouthpiece now to be just simply the messages of the evil one. And sometimes we speak like foolish men. All we have is one discouraging analysis after another. I believe in facing brutal facts. What I don't believe in is having faced brutal facts is to come up with one discouraging final conclusion after another. We are people who face brutal facts and come away with otherwise unbelievable conclusions. Only by the gift of the Holy Spirit and by the miraculous revelation of what's in the Scriptures by faith does it occur. But we face brutal facts. We call it what it is. We label it honestly. We confess our own sins. And then we come out with these extravagant conclusions. But Job's wife didn't. Curse God and die. And that's the devil's strategy. For you to face the brutal facts and come away with brutal conclusions. So, his first attempt at your life is through afflictions. Secondly, he uses doubts. And you find this in Genesis chapter 3 at the very beginning. What was the strategy that he used with Adam and Eve? Did God really say? That's the language. Does the Bible really mean what it says? Did God really say it? Did he really inspire it? Or was it, like other religious books, the best collected wisdom that men can come up with in a given age and generation with one particular religious perspective? Or is it the Word of God? And did he say it or didn't he? That's the devil's strategy, to create seeds of doubt in your own mind about who God is, about the integrity of what he said, and about the obvious meaning of what he said. And if you'll look at the attempts over the past 200 years in the places of higher learning in the West, you'll find this is exactly where they're attacking. Is God real? Is he actually there? Or is he a psychological projection of our human need? Did he really speak in the Bible? No. Or is this a faulty collection, interesting as it is, of religious perspectives of people in the first century, along with other religious affections whose writings were excluded, and these were only included because of, of a political power play. That's what you hear in the universities, at least at Princeton and UNC and other places. So which is it? And, of course... If it is the Word of God, how do you think that you can really understand it? What makes you think your interpretation is any better than anybody else's interpretation? Which is to say, the Bible doesn't speak with a univocal voice. You can't really figure it out. So, even if it is the Word of God, we're going to descend into agnosticism about any interpretation being authoritative. You can look at all those strategies. They're all demonic. Listen, I'm not saying the the people are demons. I'm saying that they are being used, perhaps unwittingly, as the voice of the evil one himself, who is constantly creating doubts about what God really said. Did God really say, he said. And then he actually opposed God and said, God said that you're not to eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's the reason. Because you would become wise like he is. So he lies about God and the voice of God so that he can create doubts in your mind. Now you say, boy, I must be really devilish because I sure have a lot of doubts. Well, look, we start with doubts before the devil even works on us. You know, we're not home yet. And our faith is in things that can't be seen. And I'm sorry. I know that God has a purpose in this. I'm sorry for the pain 
that you are experiencing because you can't see everything in which you're being called to believe. But what I know is that even when you see it, it wouldn't necessarily help you. Because when they saw it in Jesus' day, they still doubted. I mean, isn't it amazing that right before Jesus went to heaven, remember he said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations and so on. Do you remember that when the disciples in that very passage came, they saw him and worshipped, and then Matthew says, and some doubted. <laughs> Going, what? <laughs> I mean, everything the doubting mind would ever dream for. The resurrected Jesus Christ. Right there in my midst, speaking holy words to me. And I still doubt. I think I've got a problem. The problem is not that we just believe in things that we can't see. That's really not the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is in here. We have broken hearts. We have weak minds. It's very hard to believe the truth. And it's impossible without God's help. And the devil, what he does... He takes the seed of doubt that you've already got as a result of your own brokenness and he just pours it on. Uh, keep your finger there and turn with me to James chapter 1. Let's look at how, how sin actually happens from temptation. If you look in James, this is, James is the book right before 1 Peter. If you look at James 1, this is page 2007. James says in verse 13, when tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So God doesn't do the tempting. But each one is tempted when? By his own evil desire. Okay, there's the starting point. Your own evil desire. You're not just an empty shell through which demons and angels fly around. You have your own self that participates both in good and in evil. So, and you have your flesh from which come lusts or evil desires. So by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. All right. Who's doing the enticing? Well, it could be the world. It could be the devil. So it's the world, the flesh and the devil. Remember those three. You start with yourself, the flesh. That's your fallen nature that is enticed by the world and by the devil. And then what happens after enticement? It's just like a sexual encounter. Then after desire has conceived. Conceived with what? With, entice, with the enticer, with the seductress. So you have, a, you have flesh in which there are evil desires. You have a seductress. And then once you all get it going, then you conceive something. And what does it conceive? It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Okay, there you have it. It's a whole pattern. Your flesh conceives with the seductress, the world or the devil. It gives birth to sin. You let that go full term all the way to death. And that's exactly what the devil would love to do is seduce you into that pattern and to conceive with you of these sins which destroy. So, he, he devours people through doubts. So he'll take the seed of doubt that you have, and then he'll bring to you a nice book, shiny cover, scholar of, uh, an eminent scholar who's authored it, bestseller list, and you read it, and you get your, pull yourself away from the truth of God's Word. You read it. You get over this other agnostic paradigm, and you begin to start asking questions. So the questions you already had in your heart are now conceiving with some new material that's coming to you from the world, and now you're off and running. And your doubts are going to lead, of course, if they go full-blown into unbelief, they lead to sin and death. His third major strategy is temptations. And you find this, of course, with the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Now, in Matthew 4, what's very instructive is that Jesus is tempted three times. And the devil tempts him in each case with the Word of God. Interesting. The devil uses the Bible to tempt Jesus Christ. Can you think of anything more wicked and sinister? 
But to seek to pervert the Father's voice, to lead astray the only perfect one who came, so that his work of salvation for you would be canceled. Can you think of anything more sinister than that? That's how wicked the devil is. Do you think then, with that kind of evil, crass, frontline attack on the Son of God, that he's not going to try to do it with you? Of course he's going to do it with you. Davis' kid is full of books that use the Bible to lead you astray from God. The worst books in print are the ones that profess to be Christian and that lead us astray from faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation and our eternal hope of, of everlasting life. It's just the old game. It's another, it's a version Z of a very old game through the ages. Don't be surprised. Be alert. Be awake. Expect that kind of rubbish to be coming at you if Satan can masquerade himself as an angel of light, as a teacher of enlightenment, as a professor of deep wisdom. If he can masquerade himself as that, do you think? That no one else will try the same strategy. If he did it once to masquerade himself even before Jesus, do you think that he will not masquerade himself with you as preachers, priests, Sunday school teachers? I'm not trying to make us paranoid. I'm just saying that the worst dangers always come through deceit, through slate of hand. And that is always the most dangerous thing in our own culture. It's, it's the fifth column. So he, does, he uses temptations. And notice how Jesus answers him in all three temptations. Satan says, you know, you're the son of God. Why don't you turn this stone into bread? Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What does Jesus do? He doesn't let the perversions of the devil with the word of God keep him from using the Word of God. And this is what you have to remember. Sometimes I hear guys say, you know, there's no sense talking to him about the Bible. He just distorts the Bible every time. Look, if, if my home is broken into at night, 2 o'clock in the morning, and someone's coming into my bedroom, and I have a pistol just underneath my bed, it's loaded, and I pull it out, and I pointed at this guy and said, you know what, uh, we're, we're in a little bit of a fix here. Uh, and something bad could happen to you. But I think we have a couple of options. And I display, you know, I give him maybe two options. You know, fall down on the floor, beg for mercy, and I'll call the police. Or say goodbye. Uh, those are the two options. Uh, and what if he says to me, uh, <clears throat> sir, <laughs> shoot, I, I stopped believing in guns a long time ago. Uh, I just, I don't think they're very effective, especially handguns. And, uh, you know, I just, I don't believe they're going to work. And, uh, you know, they don't, they don't shoot straight. They don't, they don't kill anybody. Uh, they're completely useless. Oh, shoot. I put my gun back and say, all right, what do you want? Uh, and I find people doing that with the Bible. Is, is it powerful or is it not? Is it real or is it not? Jesus knew what it was. And if someone tries to distort it, that does not cancel the power of the Bible. If someone says, your Jesus is only one of many teachers in the world, that does not mean that Jesus is not absolute Lord and sovereign of the universe. If someone says, I believe there are many ways to heaven apart from Jesus Christ, that doesn't change at all what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to my Father except through me. That doesn't change a thing. You just keep preaching it. And when you face the devil, you remember that you've got an offensive weapon. It's a sword, and it's called the Word of God. So do not let the distortions that are coming our way because that's Satan's strategy throw you off from dealing with with the temptations that are coming your way. You must use the Word of God. That's the reason we're studying it today. 
We're not studying it today so we can be better informed sinners. So now we can go out and do all those things we always do, but at least now we know what we're doing. No, we're studying the Bible so that we go out there and use that Bible as a sword against all the wickedness and the crap and all the stuff in our lives. We're using it against our own flesh. We're using the Bible. It becomes a powerful weapon when it's understood and, and memorized and meditated upon and committed to our hearts. It's powerful. And it doesn't matter whether they believe in it or not. It doesn't make it less powerful. The devil masquerades as though it makes no difference to him. But will you please notice something? That when he tried to distort the Bible and then Jesus used the Bible correctly, do you know what the devil did? He fled. Because the Bible is powerful. It's a sword. And when you're dealing with temptations, you be sure you're bringing the Word of God and all of its power to deal with that situation. Now, thirdly, you've got to take your stand. Get in gear. Know your enemy. Take your stand. All right? First thing you do is resist it. Now, if you look in Ephesians 6, you'll find that Paul is talking about spiritual warfare. And he says, gentlemen, this devil is so powerful that when you, when you see him, run like a scalded dog. He didn't say that. He says, take your stand against the evil one. You put all your armor on. You're going to need it. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the shield of faith. Put on the helmet of salvation. Shod your feet with the gospel. And take the sword. Well, you notice that everything that Paul gave in that analogy is from the, from the front of your body. There's no, breast, there's no back plate. It's a breastplate. You're supposed to face the devil. You flee from temptation. You face down the devil. So you run like a scalded dog from temptation. But you do not run from the devil. You engage him. And you engage him with the armor that God gives you. So Peter says the same thing. Resist him. Stand firm. That's the next thing he says. Stand firm what? In your faith. You say, what does that mean? Well, I've put some, several instances here. Exodus 14. The Egyptians are about to, to do bad things to the Israelites. And God says, you just stand still and watch the salvation of God. He's basically saying, stand firm in my promise. I told you I'm taking the promised land. Just watch it. You trust me. Trust me. Watch it. Do what I'm saying. You can go up to uh, Joshua, chapter 10. You'll find the same thing. The Lord's going to do our fighting for us. You go to uh, 1 Samuel 17 with David and Goliath. David says, you come at me with sword and javelin. I come in you, to you in the name of Almighty God. And God does not win his, swords with sword, win his battles with swords and javelin. And David basically says, I'm taking my stand with the Lord. I trust him. And he will fight for us. You'll find the same thing with Nehemiah when they were being opposed, when they were building the wall, all the people around them. And Nehemiah says, when the trumpet blows, y'all come over here and we're going to watch the Lord win a good one. So, yeah, we fight. We're actually doing the battle. But it's almost like an out-of-body experience because the victory goes way beyond any explanation of human means in the battle. I'm fighting, but I'm a David fighting a Goliath. It makes no sense that I could win this battle. So I'm like watching God work through puny me to defeat this awesome roaring lion. I can't beat a roaring lion, but God is defeating a roaring lion through me because I simply take my stand and I believe that He works through puny little guys like me. And I believe Him. Stand firm in your faith. That's what faith is. It believes that God loves me and will work through me. My only duty is to stand firm and do what He said and then I'll watch for the outcome. And if he decides to take me home right now, hey, that's fine. He says the devil can destroy your body. Don't fear him, though. Fear the one who can destroy your body and throw you into hell. Fear him. That's the Lord. I fear him. So if the devil takes my body, guess what? Bingo, I'm home. Na 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 na. Just stand firm in your faith. And you believe it's going to come out because you know the end of the story. And the reason, of course, is that when you're standing firm in your faith, you're standing firm in Jesus Christ. 
And what does that mean? Well, just look at how Christ handled the devil. I'm standing firm in my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm walking in Christ. He's living in me. And I've observed how he's dealt with the devil. He has used the sword of the Spirit and completely put him to flight. Later on in his ministry, he healed the blind. He healed the lame. He cast out demons. And then he explained how he did it. He bound the strong man and plundered his house. And then he says, before he said, even I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to himself. He said, now is the hour for the world to be judged and the prince of this world to be driven out. And so when he died on the cross, he completely defeated the evil one. It looked to the world as though the evil one had won a mighty victory. Just the opposite happened. For he put up the principalities and the powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. That's what happened at the cross. So when I stand in Jesus Christ, I'm standing in that mighty victory at the cross of Calvary. And Satan knew it. You may doubt it. He doesn't doubt it. Revelation 12 tells us that he knows his time is short. That's the reason he's so furious. He knows that his time is over. The, the mighty battle has been won. D-Day has already occurred. We're just waiting for the cleaning up operation. He knows it. And he's angry. And so you get all this rage from him. That's because of his own insecurities. And he knows that you're the ultimate triumph, uh, uh, victor. So then, lastly, notice we unite with our brothers we know that we are all family, and this family all undergoes sufferings, and we all undergo the same kind of sufferings. In God's gracious economy, every scheme of the devil, every form of suffering at his hands, results in our strengthening and in our glory. That's the ultimate irony of this one who wants to devour you. This is what Peter has said in the first chapter, that even with our afflictions, even with our doubts, even with our temptations. God is taking all of that to strengthen us. For when we are weak, then we are strong. How do we know our weaknesses? When we doubt, when we suffer, when we're tempted. And when we know our weaknesses, we go to Him and what? We become strong. You see how the, the Lord has turned on His head. Everything the devil's tried to do to destroy you ends up being one more weapon that the Lord is doing to sharpen and hone you as men of glory. That's what it means then, to know where you're headed. This suffering turns into glory, even the worst the devil can do to us. So, God was right. He will bruise your heel, but you will crush His head. Gracious God, we thank You for the, the wonderful plan of salvation which includes the destruction of the devil and all of his ways and the glorious salvation of all that can harm uh, for all of your people from all that can harm us into a life of complete joy and rest and excitement and pleasure with you. We thank you for this in Jesus name. Amen. God bless you all.